Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Our uh, guest this morning is John Grunewald, as I've been warning you for weeks. I'm sorry. As I've been announcing for weeks. John and Michelle have served the body of Christ as uh, pastors in Indiana. Was that your first pastorate? Uh, and uh, they went, I don't know if there were steps in between, but they, um, we started supporting them, I think, when they became a head of Rama Germany. And since then, they have uh, overseen Rama Europe and now director of Rama Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Is a man who's been used to save souls. He's a man who's been used to train others to save souls and to oversee multiple institutions that train others to save souls. And as a result of his obedience, untold thousands have come to Christ. And he remains, and on several continents, by the way, and he remains through all of these accomplishments and all the accolades that he's received over the years, one of the most straightforward, no-nonsense, humble guys I have ever met. He is, and I never want to say this to the denigration of any other minister or any other person, he is simply one of the realest guys you will ever meet. I have never sat in one of his meetings uh, or had a conversation with him where I didn't feel challenged and at the end of that meeting, conversation service, better equipped to be a minister. He makes me a better Christian and I believe you're going to be blessed by his time with us this morning. Would you please joining me in giving a warm Living Word Family Church welcome to John Grunewald. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Very kind introduction there. I appreciate that. I would say that uh, over the years of uh, my life and then Michelle's in my life together, that we are, um, we were probably the least likely to do what we do. You know how they have that in high school, like the most likely to succeed and all those kind of things? I would say we were the least likely because God took two very shy people who never wanted to get up in front of anybody and speak or lead anything. And that's exactly what we do today. And there was a lot of times in, when, when I first started when I was sitting there and taking the steps to the front where I just said, God, you better be here today because if not, you're going to be really embarrassed. <laughs> so it's been, a, it's been a total reliance upon him and what he's called us to do. And uh, we just walked that out one day at a time. That's about all you can do, isn't it? And uh, stuck with it and kept a passion for the church and what God was doing in the earth. And there were, you know, in the early days, we didn't really know what we were doing, but we were doing something, right? It's, it's the old thing, it's uh, you can't steer a parked car. So we kept moving, and, uh, you know, you just kind of end up places sometimes, don't you? And we're very thankful for all he's done in us and through us. And we moved to uh, Germany in 1993 from Terre Haute, Indiana. And... Uh, that was a big step. You know, you go to a new culture and language and all those kind of things, and you have to adjust, and it's never comfortable. I mean, you're, God is, you're always at the edge or beyond your, your comfort zone. 
But you know, that's the place where you grow. That's where you, uh, you grow a lot right there. And it seems like that's where God has kept us for the, all these years. And, uh, you know, I'm not complaining about that. In the beginning, I complained about it a little bit more. I just don't complain about it anymore. Uh, so we're very thankful for what God has had us a part of and what we're doing. And um, so excited to still keep doing it. We're, uh, we're happy about what God has done and uh, our passion to do what we're doing is as great or greater than it ever has been. And uh, we get to work with some of the most amazing people in the world. Um, you know, working with Rhema has, wasn't something we ever planned. It just worked out that way. And today, to keep everything going around the world that Rhema does with almost 200 and what is it, 85 campus locations we have around the world in 54 nations, it takes 7,000 people to keep that going. And only about 1,300 of those are paid. The rest are volunteering their, their time. You know, it's from a few hours to a lot of hours every week and month to make that happen. And uh, so it's amazing. Uh, everywhere I've been around the world and go teach at a school or something, it feels like Ramo. You got that spirit of faith there and people that are believing God to do great things in a nation and see lives changed and built. And so it's fun. It's fun to be a part of. And we always said this, that if all we ever did was Bible school and it didn't turn into a church planting movement, we just had fun. So uh, that's something we've been working on a lot the past decade or so, is doing a lot more church planting training so we can get more churches planted. We believe churches should plant churches. And like beget like, right? So uh, we're helping a lot of pastors that are not Rhema graduates and our Rhema graduates that are pastoring to help plant more churches all, all over the world today. So that's uh, something that I think we'll see grow more again in the next or in the future. Um, school is fun. It still takes work to plant new campuses and new nations. We are still doing that even in Europe, and uh, it's, it's fun. We enjoy that part. You know, people are made differently, and uh, Michelle and I are some of those people that we could go anywhere and start anything. Some people can't, but they can take it from that place and build it into something greater. So we, we have to sift through that with people, finding out who can do what, and uh, that, that takes some time, but it's a fun thing to do. It's called discipleship, isn't it? And that's what we're called to do. All right, anyhow, this morning I want to talk about something along all these lines, and if you have any other questions about what we do, I'm, I'll be happy to talk to you after the service today. And uh, you, know, you can only say so much about all that. We do basically four things continually. We are planting more uh, Bible training centers around the world. We are uh, training more leaders because every organization or, uh, start over. Every organization needs more leaders if you're going to grow. You can't do it without growing leaders. So we spend a lot of time today growing people and growing leaders because we want to keep growing around the world. We, um, we do the church planting training. And then the, one, the other thing we do is we do a book project. Uh, in Europe, it's called the Greater European Book Project, and it's 25 of Brother Hagen's books into 34 language zones. So do the math on that. You guys are young. What's... 25 times 34. 
I think it's like 850 or something, isn't it? Um, but that's about that's how many book titles we have to do. Is, is that about right? Eight, 850, yeah. It keeps growing. We keep finding another language to throw it into. So we're about halfway done with that project. That's taken a lot of work over the years, but what that does is it puts books into the hands of students that we want them to read, and it puts, we, in the perfect world, we want to get those into these nations before we ever plant a campus so that the books are there and can start a grassroots movement. Uh, books go where we, you and I may never go into somebody's home, and so it's a good project. And this, uh, I haven't really talked about this yet, but coming up this August, uh, I'm going to do something I've wanted to do for quite a while. And my oldest son and I are going to do, do a hike called the Colorado Trail. It goes from Denver, Colorado to Durango. It's 486 miles. And uh, we're going to raise money for that book project on that. I want to raise a quarter of a million dollars on, and raise awareness to that. So we're going to keep planning that. He's also applied to go work in Antarctica, so I'm kind of hoping that happens after we're done with that hike. Because it's, it's hard to find somebody that hikes like you, especially for that kind of distance. So anyhow, it's, some people think we're crazy, but I, I love hiking. I love the mountains. And uh, so it's, it's something I get to do and help uh, raise awareness and funds for a project that is changing people's lives. There's a guy named Jay Strack. He's an author. And he said, you'll be the same person you are five or ten years from now except for the people you meet, the places you go, and the books you read. Now, we should probably add in there in the music you listen to, right? Because that makes a lot of difference, too. He didn't add that in there. So, uh, and you know that the people you've met in life have changed your life. The places you've gone have affected you, changed you, and books certainly have. Books have changed lives. And we still believe that it, it, that works. And in a lot of places in the world, they aren't really doing electronic books yet. We do those, too. But we want to get printed uh, books into their hands. So it'll take us a while. I'd love to see that project done by 2030, but we're going to have to speed it up if we're going to do that because that's a lot of books to do yet. So anyhow, praise the Lord on that. Let's just pray one more time. Father, we thank you for our time here together today. I thank you for each person here. And also if somebody's watching online today. Father, we are so thankful for your word, the written word and then also the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that the Holy Spirit today would take the words that are said and do in the hearts of people what only he can do in a very personal work and speak to us each individually. Father, we love you so much. We're so thankful to be a part of the family of God, the body of Christ, and doing your will here upon the earth. And we thank you for some more insight on that today. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 If you have a Bible or some kind of device, open it up to Matthew 16. We'll get there in a little while. I just want to say a few things before we get there. Um, how many of you, got that caught on my sweater there for a second. How many of you ha have small children today or had small children? How many of you have ever seen a small child? Okay, good. It's getting concerned there. If, you, if you've had one around, or at least you can remember back, uh, what are, what's one of the one-word questions that they ask a lot when they're, why? Yeah, everybody knows that. So we have a granddaughter who is just 
starting to talk a little bit more, and I'm looking forward to where she pays her parents back with that, how uh, our son did with us. And just smile and watch until they, they, because the whys keep coming beyond what you can answer sometimes. But I think why is a great question. And we shouldn't stop asking it as we grow older. There are some very important questions that we should answer. Why am I here? Right? Why am I breathing air? Uh, why do I live where I live? I mean, did I move here recently, a long time ago? Was I born here? And what is God doing with all of that? Uh, the, the question is, what is the Holy Spirit, big picture, doing in the earth today? And then how does that come down to me and my life? Well, where, where do I fit into all that? So I want to I answer the big picture, one of that today. Not going to surprise you, I hope. Uh, and then we'll bring it back to us as individuals and how we fit into that. Let's see, yeah. So, uh, Matthew chapter 16, and it starts, I'm not going to read all the verses, you can, uh, I'm going to talk about them a little bit. But in about the 13th verse, Jesus is walking along with his disciples and he asks a question. You know what I found out? that questions are about the greatest tool that I have. If you want to help people self-discover, ask them questions. I can tell them a lot of things, you know, and in smaller groups, if we had a small group to hear today, I would do less talking and more, more asking questions. In a, in a setting like this, that's a little harder to do. But uh, we certainly found out that with people that worked with us and even with our kids that asking questions help them more than sometimes me giving a lecture. I knew what I wanted to say. But self-discovery brings ownership into life, doesn't it? So Jesus is walking along, and he says to his disciples, he goes, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Were, were any of those answers right? No. They were all wrong. He didn't even correct them which is interesting. He just asked another question. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter, by personality, he spoke up. Sometimes he was right. Sometimes he was wrong. Um, we do that in class sometimes, and I always know personality types by who raises their hand first. Uh, but so he asked that question, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He got that right, didn't he? And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So he didn't get it just from talking to somebody else. He was walking with him, observing things, putting the Scripture together, and he got a revelation that Jesus was the Christ. And this was a huge deal. I mean, to put that out of your mouth, oh my, that's a big deal. But Jesus said, you know, you're right. You got that one right. And he said, and then on this rock, this rock of revelation that he was the Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what, here's kind of, I think, the way what happened there. As Jesus asked those questions, he wanted to see if they had discovered who he was yet. He didn't go around, he didn't put anything on his Instagram or Facebook or anything that he was the Christ. He just was doing what he was doing, and he wanted to know if they recognized who he was yet. So Peter, he was right, and you don't know how 
close the other ones were to having had that same revelation. We don't know. It doesn't say that. But at least Peter had that. And so as soon as Jesus was revealed as the Christ, he declared what he was going to do for the next 2,000 years. Wow. That's a big deal. That's a long-term plan, isn't it? 2,000 years? And has he ever changed his mind? No. And so what, is it, what did he say? He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So for the last 2,000 years, the thing that's been on his mind, on his agenda, has been to build the church here on the earth. Well, what is the church? It's us. We're the ecclesia, right? The called out ones. And we, there is the universal church, which is made up of every believer. And then we have a, a, a local church, which shows us how that should function too, you know, in the same way that the universal church does. So um, he is working through believers still today to build the church. If you wonder why you're on the earth and why you're breathing air, that's why. Thanks for coming. That's all I had to say. That's, that's pretty general, but it's also helpful if you don't know that's why you're here and breathing air. To know I'm here to build the church. Well, then there should be some questions that follow that, like what is my part in that and how do I do that? And then again, those aren't really a big mystery. Now, there are some specific things to each and every life that we have to discover as individuals just like we did, right? I know I'm here on the earth to build the church. God, what's my part? How, when, who, where? All those kind of things we have to answer. So we have to first discover what that is, and then along the way we develop it so that we can give that supply to the body of Christ to help it grow. So we're still building the church. And you say, why? Well, the church still is the answer for the world today. I know Jesus is the answer. But where people are going to come and gather, the church still is the answer today. The world is lost and it's hurting, and that has been amplified over these last couple of years like never before again. If there's ever been a time when the world needs the local church, it's today. And at the same time, it seems like all over the world the church is trying to be minimized, and we should be maximizing now, we, still, we have freedom here. You go to places in Europe or Australia, for instance, and uh, they were shut down from having church together in Germany for a year. Couldn't come, couldn't meet together. So they were, you know, our church that we started over there and is pastored by somebody else now for the last 10 years, well, they were, we were on TV, so that was an easy thing for us to be available online for people. Uh, but a lot of churches weren't. It's estimated that in Europe that over 50% of all local churches will have closed after this. 50%. Now, in the United States, they're guessing 25 to 30% closed. That's not all bad, okay? I don't think it's all bad. There's some places that should close. But the people shouldn't stop going to a church. They should find a good one that's still working and giving out life, right? So... The, the idea of all this was to help shut the church down, part of the 
whole thing that happened around the world. Don't let that happen to you. Right? In fact, do the opposite. Kick the devil in the teeth. Get more involved. What more can I do? Right? I'm going to build the church one way or another. So the, the, the world needs the church. There's a, some years ago I was reading where in Japan where people are very much to themselves when they're not working that there, there, there was an epidemic of people dying alone in their apartments and they weren't discovered until neighbors smelled them. That's called not having friends, isn't it? Or family around. So they said it was a, it was a big problem in Japan. And uh, so you think about today when people were forced to be isolated all over the world for a long time. Uh, you can think how bad that is there. People need the church. They need Christians living next to them, checking on them. They need all sorts of things like that. In Europe, it's still estimated that we're only at about 4% of the population is born again. That means 96 out of every 100 people you run across are on their way to hell. Do you think God finds that acceptable? No. Should we? No. Well, there's probably something we can do about that. Um, just like John 3.16 says, God still does love the world. And he gave his son to show that love and to give us a path back to God. So he loves the world. Um, let's turn over to Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm just going to mention four things that maybe can help us build better or more on purpose than we have. I think we've probably done all these in many of our local churches that we know. Uh, but this just puts it into a couple steps or points. I hope this message today is really a reminder to you. There's something you hear all the time. Lots of times when, when a guest is in, we might say something in a different way than the pastor says, but probably not different than the pastor has says. Right? Same message. I remember you, when we were pastoring in Indiana years ago, there was one of the young guys came up into my office one day, and he goes, Pastor, I was just listening to Marilyn Hickey, and she said, da 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 and she was, he was all excited, and I said, I say that all the time. <laughs> but I'm glad you got it. So I call it the Marilyn Hickey effect. <laughs> Sometimes it just takes another way to hear it is all. Um, so um, in Nehemiah, this, this is a, I think it's a very interesting book of the Bible because God gave Nehemiah an interesting assignment. He was living in an interesting assignment, and he gave him another one. The one was not by choice. The second one was by the favor of God. Uh, he was the king's cupbearer. Uh, he had, was basically a slave, but he had, because of his faithfulness, he had become the king's cupbearer. But then God dealt with his heart about something to do something else. And that's what we're going to read about and how that process happened and what became of it. It's really interesting. Um, I'll just, I'll, I'll give, it, give it away here in the beginning because I want you to see the path to how it came. That he gets an assignment to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. He's not in any kind of place to go do that. He, he doesn't have his own life and his own choices, really. 
uh, as the king's cupbearer, he was, that's what he did. And he didn't have freedom to go anywhere else. So God does something in him, and uh, eventually he, he gets his assignment to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And sometimes that's all people read, and that's all it's known for. I read it for years and looked at it that way. And then you read along and you think, okay, he, God used that assignment to do something greater. And what was the greater? It was to rebuild faith in a nation. That's what he really did. One was just the catalyst for the other. And I think that there's a pattern that we see throughout the Bible that way and throughout life where God will give us an assignment for something, and we see that, but we don't always see what he really wants to do. The wall was important, but what was more important was rebuilding faith in that nation. Is God trying to do the same thing today? Absolutely. So, let's look at how that happened. And when we read about Nehemiah, I don't want you to think just about him, but think about you. What does this mean for you? How does your life uh, get affected by this or touched in this particular account that we read here? Um, think about you and, and your local church here and what that means. I think that it's, uh, we can get very familiar with our church or with ourselves or with people and we forget how important they are, Right? So anyhow, Nehemiah 1, verse 1. It says, In late autumn in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and how things were going in Jerusalem. So what did he do? He's asking questions. They said to me, Things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down. The gates have been destroyed by fire. And when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. So Nehemiah has a concern for Jerusalem, doesn't he? And the, the question that, the, that we can then ask ourselves is, do we have a concern for our city, for our state, for our nation, in the same manner that he had a, a concern for it. What is our reaction to a bad report? There's a lot of reactions we can have. We can dwell on it. We can imagine all the bad things that will come from it. We can freak out. You ever seen anybody freak out over a bad report? Or you can do nothing. We have all those choices, don't we? Or we can do good. So the first thing that Nehemiah did was pray. Well, there's a big surprise, right? We're in church and we're talking about prayer. But when he heard something, the first thing he did was pray. He didn't freak out. If he was freaking out, he was freaking out in prayer. Now, he just prayed. It said that he wept, he fasted, he prayed. So God grabbed Nehemiah's attention, and this caused him to pray. You ever had your attention grabbed by something? Well, if you do, then what do we do? If something touches your heart, maybe one of the first things we should do is pray. Prayer gives us an opportunity to clarify 
some things in our hearts and our mind. Prayer gives us insight. Prayer helps us to prepare. Prayer will, should make expectations for us. In the early 1980s, after uh, Michelle and I got, Michelle and I met at Rama. Uh, neither of us were looking for a spouse. Very happy just where we were in life, but anyhow, God brought us together, and we got married the next year. So we got married in the fall of 1980, and then we were back in Tulsa for a time in the early 80s there, and Brother Hagen had prayer meetings. It's before the church was started in Tulsa, and Brother Hagen had prayer meetings, and when he would stand on the stage like this, there was a map up on the wall over there in that particular large room. And uh, he would, we'd, he'd be praying on these Monday nights, and then before we were dismissed, always for a season, he'd say, let's stretch our hands out toward the map and pray for Europe. You know, the Iron Curtain, whole, that whole thing. And we prayed for Europe. Well, during that time, God tucked that one word, Europe, into Michelle's and my heart. And I say tucked at that time because it wasn't something we talked about much. But it was in there. It was a seed that God was had planted, and it would develop over time. The reason that it took so much time was because of where Michelle and I were. <laughs> we had a lot of growing to do. And it would have been unsafe for us to follow that word that, that God tucked in our heart at that time, at least as far as going there. So he kept us in America and, and involved in these kind of things for quite a while. Uh, I'll come back to that. But because, you know, the, you, you'd hear the reports of Europe and how spiritually dark it was and the Iron Curtain and all those kind of things, it grabbed your attention. And so we prayed. And if you don't pray, you never know if it's going to be, become an assignment for you or not. Sometimes you have to start. You have to spend a little bit of time there. And you may get a release from it, and it may not be your assignment. But you'll never find out if something is your assignment if you don't start walking down that path of prayer. And so we did pray. And I was so glad that we were there at that time and that, that uh, we went to those Monday night prayer meetings because it, it had something happened there that changed the whole direction of our life or gave clarity to the direction of our life. And... Um, so when Nehemiah heard the great need of Jerusalem, he did that too. He prayed. And then in verses 5 through 10 of that first chapter, he realizes some things about himself that need to change, and he says he repents. And uh, for, he said that he wasn't following and obeying God like he should have. So he, he repents, and he makes the adjustments internally. And then we get to verse 11. He says, O Lord... Please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. Now we'll see in a little bit how important that prayer was. It says, in those days I was the king's cupbearer. Right? So he was the one who um, tasted the king's food and all that kind of thing to make sure that it wasn't poison. If it was, guess who died? Not the king. So, uh, you know, you, if, you were, if I was the king's cupbearer, I'd have a close eye on the kitchen, personally. I'd want to know what, who was doing and what was going on because uh, I don't want to be the one that 
kicks the bucket because uh, it was meant for the king, but I tasted it. So let's go on to chapter 2. He says, early the following spring. So this is approximately six months after he heard the report about Jerusalem and starts praying. He says, in the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king as wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. Now, we don't know exactly how many years he served there, but never before had he appeared sad in his presence. That's an interesting thought right there, isn't it? So you can walk through life and not wear your feelings on your sleeve. Just a thought. Um, it's impressive, I think, that he was that way. Um, verse 2, so the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. Why was he terrified? Because when you came into the presence of the king as the cupbearer or probably anybody else, you didn't have the right to have bring in your own problems with you, right? You were there to serve in a certain way, in a certain manner, and you literally could have your head chopped off at the word of the king for coming into his presence wrong. So here comes Nehemiah, and he must have been thinking a little bit too hard about it that day, and it showed on his face, and the king asked him a question. And so the first thing he says in verse 3 is, long live the king. You know, we want to make sure that we're good here. This has nothing to do with you. He says, how can I not be sad for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? The king asked, well, how can I help you? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Those are words that if you're standing before a king and he says, how can I help you? You just got the golden ticket. I mean, he doesn't have to say that to you ever. But he had favor. He'd prayed for favor and he had favor. And the king says, how can I help you? He said, so I prayed to the God of heaven. He said, I replied, if it please the king and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him. I think it's important that it said that there, the queen sitting beside him. I think she played a vital role in this. It's another story, but I think she did. He said, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. He must have gone back to his room that day and said, I can't believe that worked, that it actually happened. I mean, he got something that he'd probably never seen anybody ever have before, that kind of favor, and with an assignment that he felt he was supposed to do. So um, the old city of Susa, which, is in, which was part of the Persian Empire, was almost uh, 850 miles away from Jerusalem. So this is no small thing. I mean, you don't just walk there the next day. I mean, you got a journey. Whether you're on horseback or cart or walking, it's going to take you a while to get there. So what do we see happen? The first thing that Nehemiah did was pray. Now, when the king asked him how long you will be gone and what can we do for you, he answered him. So what must have he been doing while he was praying? He was planning. He wasn't just praying. He was praying and planning. Because there were a lot of logistics that were going to have to happen with this thing. He knew it was 850 miles away. He knew they were going to need 
uh, lumber to build gates, and they were going to need workers to build the walls and all those kinds of things. So somehow during that six months from when he started to pray until this came up before the king, he also had done a fair amount of planning. So when the king asked him, how can I help you, he was very specific. You know what, we should go to God that way too. Be specific. Pray about some things, but when you go to God and really ask him for something that you're wanting or believing for, be very specific about what it is. Have, you, have spent the time, you know, writing some things down so that you know what it is you need and what you want. Verse 7, I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. He was thinking. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the, the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make the beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and, the, and a house for myself. Threw that one in there. That's good. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. So again, number one, we must pray. But number two, there's got to be some planning going on while we're praying. But that's also why it's not bad to pray over time. Because some of those things will happen then. If we pray quickly and let it go, there's not going to be much planning there. So if we spend time praying, it's going to make a difference. From the time that Michelle and I had that one word tucked in our heart, Europe, and this is easy to see looking back. It's never so easy to see when you're in the middle of it, is it? But when we look back, because it, we it was almost a decade before we ever even took a trip to Europe. Almost every year we'd say, should we take a trip there? And it was just, it was, there wasn't a word from the Lord or anything like that, but it was like he was standing there just going, no. No reason, nothing else. But it was just kind of like, no. So we followed that, right? Sometimes you just follow what seems right. Uh, so it took a long time. And then there was, it was while we were pastoring in Terre Haute that, uh, you know, we got an invitation to go speak at a couple of Bible schools over there. And I told the guy, I said, well, you know, we'll check, see if we got a permission to go or not. And uh, I said, we're willing. And that time when we prayed about going, there wasn't one of these. It was more like a, yeah, you can do that. And so we did. And it was when we were on our way back, we went to Sweden for a week, Estonia for a week, and Germany for about five days just to visit some friends. And when we were on our way back over the North Atlantic, somewhere up there, Michelle and I both knew right about the same time we were going to move to Germany. And I can't even tell you exactly how we knew that, but we just knew that. And uh, so we did that then in uh, July of 1993. We moved to Heidelberg, Germany. And we were there for, what, four and a half, five years. And then we moved from there to Bonn, Germany. And that's where we started church there again and then started Rhema Bible Training Center, which was the first one that Rhema had done since the uh, the U.S., and they had done one in South Africa and Australia 20 years before that. So Pastor Hagen had asked if we'd be interested in turning our school into that, and we said, well, let's, we'll, we'll do, we'll pray, and whatever is best for Europe uh, and for Germany, that's what we'll do. And so we, we ended up doing that, obviously, and that was 
20, we started school there in 1999. So that's been a few years already. Now we have 12, 13 campuses in, in Germany alone. And uh, 60 or 70 in Europe and Africa together and about 5,000 students every month in, in just that part of the world. So uh, it was just one step at a time, but we stuck with the assignment, with what we had prayed for for 10 years. It seems like we're still walking some of that out today. Now we're still praying today too. Um, so anyhow, the question then is, do we stick with prayer long enough sometimes for a plan to form? If we get too excited and jump out ahead of it, we could abort the, the real plan that God wants. And we don't want to do that. So take your time sometimes when it comes to if you feel like you're getting an assignment for something. Now let me say this. Some things don't need big plans. And some things don't need a lot of prayer. Sometimes you just do them. Right? When you're a part of a family, you don't have to pray about taking the trash out. You know, I used to, I might have told this here before, but when, our, when we were living in Bonn, our trash had to be out very early, like by 6 o'clock on Wednesday morning. So we put it out Tuesday night, and uh, I'd holler upstairs, say, kids, collect the trash, bring it down. And if I heard things like, yeah, Dad, we don't really feel the anointing when we do the trash, or we don't feel led, or we'll pray about it, I'd have, been, I'd have said, I will be right up there to help you feel led. <laughs> Why? Because it doesn't need any of that. It just needs doing it's a regular part of living and, and a part of a family. And churches are the same way. There's some things that just need to be done. We don't need to pray about them. We just jump in and we do them. And that makes everything function a whole lot better. Sometimes people have these grandiose plans that they're believing and praying for, but they don't put their hand to anything now. It doesn't work that way. You just never will go anywhere. I'm not, you're all, I'm preaching to the choir here, I know. But maybe some of you out there. Uh, all that, that entire time that we had Europe tucked in our heart, we were always a part of our church. We were always helping our friends that were going to Europe go to Europe, whether that meant driving them to the airport or cutting their grass or doing their newsletters or picking up their mail. Whatever we could do to help anything that went in that direction of that, what God had put in here. And for most people, it may never get much more specific than build the church. And that means I'm plugged in locally, and whatever I can put my hand to, that's what I do. Say, well, I'm not sure what to do. Ask one of the leaders, they'll tell you. And serious, you say, well, but I don't want to do it for the rest of my life. Fine, don't do it the rest of your life. Move around. Find an, you tell them you want to switch to another thing. But, you know, it just, it, people that stay engaged do much better. So, again, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but uh, there might be somebody that hears this message someday that needs to hear it more than you do. So I'll say it, because it's, every local church has the same thing. People are people everywhere. Things come up in life, and they withdraw that's one of the biggest mistakes ever. We would hear people say, well, I'm just going to take a break from church for a while. It's like, I've never seen anybody come back from that. Take a break from church? What? 
This is the one place in the world we are supposed to stay plugged into. <laughs> Take a break and do what? Watch TV? There's, there's nothing to take a break to that's better than this. Because this is the purpose that we're here. You know, there's a, there's a big problem with depression in the world today. I could solve most of it. And just if we bring everybody in and say, plug yourself in because this is why you're breathing. And if you will get involved in the purpose that God has you on the earth, you'll be amazed how much better you'll get. And there are people here who can help pull you up out of that hole. Because it's hard to do yourself. But there are people here, this is the exact community, the exact place to, for people to come out of those kinds of things. We don't take a break when we're in trouble. We, we get in closer. Amen. So, what about Nehemiah? Let's go back to him. So he, he planned and... Uh, so that they would be ready. Number three, then, he had to act on that somewhere then. So we're going to look at, at some of that. Um, let's go to uh, verse 9, I guess it is. It says, When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. This is his authority, Right? The king had written letters so that he had authority to go places that they wouldn't let him go otherwise. You and I have been given authority. If we'd have kept reading in Matthew 16, we stopped at verse 18 where he said, I will build my church. But verse 19, he said, I'll give you the keys of the, of the, to the kingdom, right? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. That was our authority. He declares that he's going to build his church but the next thing he says is, I'm giving you the authority to the kingdom. It's amazing. So just like Nehemiah had letters from the king, we have letters that give us authority to function here on the earth and do exactly what we're supposed to do. We aren't rebuilding a wall, but we're building the church. And it's a bigger deal than building a wall. I think that all those years ago in the 1950s, when Brother Hagen had a whole series of visions. And in one of those, it was, go teach my people faith. And that was something that God emphasized in him and through him throughout his life, which was, what, 50 years worth of his life and ministry where he did that. Well, then, you know, he was driving along and always saying, um, Lord, how do I get this message out? How do I get this message out? Well, the answer to that was Rhema Bible Training Center. It's now a college. But uh, he didn't see that at the time. He was just out preaching and getting the revelation of it and getting that spread. And then, then you know, he's in a meeting and says, we're going to start a Bible school. He didn't even believe that he'd said it. They had to replay that for him. They started a Bible school in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and that has now spread to 54 nations around the world. Why? to rebuild faith in the nations. Because when he comes back, he's looking for that, isn't he? So, same with, it's not just those, but then the thousands of churches that got started out of Ramah so far. Because that goes into every community. Why does God have you here? Because that's what he wants done here. He wants this area, this region, to be, have its faith rebuilt. Verse 9, 
We read that one. Um, we're part of it. He says, I delivered the, uh, the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. I love that. I should add. Yeah, that's kind of a big deal. Um, it, the king, he had such favor with the king that he didn't give him just what he asked for. He gave him more. Oh, it's awesome, isn't it? He says, but when Sambalai, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Amorite, Ammonite officials, heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. <laughs> Not much has changed there, has it? Even with favor, we still have an adversary. Right? He doesn't go away, but we do have that authority. So then, so he had to start acting on that. He had to make the trip there. And then the fourth thing is that he had actually had to start to build, put the plan into action. So in verse 11, so I arrived in Jerusalem three days later. I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding on. There is a time to keep things tucked in our heart, but there's also a time to do, like Habakkuk said, to write the vision and make it plain. Why? So that others can run with it too. Right? So no matter what kind of assignment God puts in somebody's heart, eventually it has to be written out, spoken out, so that others can be a part of it. Nothing that we've ever been called to do can we do on our own. When, when Michelle and I, in that early season around Tulsa in the early 80s, um, we were at a, at a church meeting one night that was going on, and Annette Capps, Charles Capps' daughter, was speaking. And Michelle had, had roomed with her when she was a Rama, her and Patsy Bierman or Caminetti now. The three of them lived in a house together. So Annette was speaking, so we knew her, and we were sitting about five rows back. And she's uh, teaching and just stops, points at us. She goes, John and Michelle, you'll never lack for help because of the seeds you planted. Goes on. That's it. We get out to the car that night, and I said, that was hilarious. I said, what would we need help for? That's called no vision. That's called not at all seeing the future. <laughs> And uh, so you get down the road, and then you think, wow, do we need help? Well, that's the same for every pastor. I figure even in a small church, it takes 50 people to make the pastor look good on a Sunday morning. And you grow from there, and it just needs to keep growing, and more and more people need to be vitally engaged in embracing the vision so that it can do what it's supposed to do, and people are drawn in and brought in. And you can reach out the way that you're supposed to. So there does come a time when we have to share it and so that other people can run with that too. Verse 17, But now I said to them, You know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, Yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. Uh, verse 19, but when Sambalai, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked. I replied, the God of heaven helped us, will help us succeed. 
We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall, but you have no share, legal right, or hysteric, hysteric, historic claim in Jerusalem. I like that verse. That says a lot, doesn't it, about where Israel is today. Uh, Nehemiah speaks it out of his mouth. He says, but you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. Boy, is that upside down today. So, Nehemiah was a builder. He didn't, I don't think he knew he was a builder until he got that assignment, but he was a builder. Um, we are builders. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 3.10. He said, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. I love that verse. He said, According to the grace of God which was given me as a wise master builder. Of what? The church, a wise master builder of the church. Do we still need wise master builders? If you're going to build a house, who would you rather have, the, the local kindergarten class or a wise master builder leading that group? Well, God's going to use the children. Well, he will use children. But when you're talking about building, you need wise master builders, right? Uh, you just can't go about it any other way. I love the the story that you read in uh, Exodus. Now, when I first got saved, my friends gave me a Bible. And I was 17 years old, never had a Bible before. And they gave me a Bible, and they opened it up to the Gospel of John and said, start reading here. And I said, why, do, why would you start reading a book three-quarters of the way through? And they said, well, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament, and, da, 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 and so start reading here. I said, well, then why don't they put that in the front of the book? It just didn't make any sense to me. Right? And for when I, as a young Christian in, in our small group or Bible study, uh, my favorite page of the Bible is the table of contents. Because these guys are naming scriptures so fast, I have no idea where they're going. I don't know whether to go right or left. You know, so the table of contents was my favorite page. And uh, so, you know, as, as you're, you're going along and getting your assignment then, you know, you have, to, you have to figure some of that out and discover it. But anyhow, so I'm reading, and I wanted to read the whole Bible anyhow. Once I got saved and started reading some of the New Testament, I thought, I'm going to go back and read from the beginning. Well, there were some parts of Scripture in there. i got to tell you in the beginning, I thought, if there's anything supernatural about it, it's supernaturally boring. I thought, how do you stay awake reading some of this? You know, so I'm, in, I'm reading in Exodus, and you're reading through some of those, and you're like, shaking your head to go, wow, I know that this is here for a reason, but I can't figure out what any of it is. So, you know, time goes on, you keep reading, and then you read uh, chapters like Exodus 25 through 31, and it tells all about the, uh, the building of the temporary tabernacle, right? And it's, it's in detail. It's talking about the utensils and the clothing and the dimensions, and you go, who really cares? Well, then you look at the wording, you get to chapter 31, and this is the Lord speaking to Moses. And he says that I've anointed so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. He names them. And here's what they're anointed to do. And these were all people that were gifted as artisans, you know, or you know, they worked with precious metals or stone or wood or something. That's the kind of people he wanted building the temporary tabernacle people that were anointed to do certain jobs and were skilled at it too. Not just anointed, but skilled. 
You can have both, can't you? So you read along there, and he, um, he goes through 10 verses and, you, and names several different people and what they're anointed to do. And you get down to verse 11, and he says, Everything that I have commanded you, they shall do. Well, you read that and you go, I don't know whether I want to tell them that. <laughs> Everything that he commanded to Moses, he said, you shall, they shall do. Well, that's part of it. Again, no matter what you're called to, you're usually you're called to lead that many times, and then God's going to gather people around to help you fulfill it. Right? So he didn't want Moses doing it. Now, he had to teach Moses this lesson several times. You see it again in Exodus 18 when Jethro, his father-in-law, comes to visit. He's the one that has led two-plus million people out of slavery, 400 years of it. And so Jethro watches him for one day where he's out there, says, you know, teaching the statutes of God, we would say the Word of God. And then he stands from sunup till sundown, you know, judging between all the things that the people need help with. And, and so Jethro watches one day and says, <clears throat> hey, uh, you know, it's good that you're teaching the Word, but this thing you're doing, it's not good. He goes, you're going to wear yourself out and the people. He says, listen to my counsel, and if you feel like it's from God, then do it. And in Moses could have said, hey, I'm the one that got called to do this, not you. So butt out. He didn't. I mean, that's why it says that Moses was a meek or a humble or a teachable man. So he listens to his father-in-law, and he says, you know, divide up into groups of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them take care of this, the pastoral care for this group of people. Moses was trying to be the primary caregiver of two-plus million people. It's impossible. You can't do it. You know what? The average church in America is 87 or 89 people. You know why? Because that's about as much primary care as one person can give. If you don't restructure like Jethro told Moses to do, he said, this is never going to work. You're going to burn yourself out. So he said, you're going to have to restructure. And, 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 he, and he showed them how to do that. And they did it. And the amazing thing is all those people were there. They just weren't being used. Good lesson in there, isn't it? But the point being that there's, you can never do this on your own. When God plants a local church and has a pastor here, and of course it started with Pastor Larry and Pam, and now I have Scott and Beth. But when they planted that church, they, you know, it's like nobody's obligated to come help. And sometimes you wonder why they did. You know, when we started pastoring, I thought, I look back, I thought, I can't believe God sent anybody there at that point in time, for the little I knew. But he did. And so the leader then, we want to become better builders, wise master builders, but then God calls people alongside to help fulfill that assignment. I actually like the word assignment better than vision in a way. Because assignment, everybody understands an assignment. In school, if you're given an assignment, is it, is it a, a yes or a no or a maybe? I mean, it's a yes, isn't it? You're, you have to do it or you don't get the grade. You're going to flunk. Well, is it any different with God? We get an assignment to lead something or be a part of something, and it's necessary then that we do it, otherwise we flunk. I don't know about you. This is one thing I don't want to flunk, and that's my assignment in life. Right? 
I didn't love school. I never did. I was good in school. It was easy for me, but I never liked it. I, I didn't, I just, for me, it seemed like such a waste of time. Now, it wasn't all a waste of time. I'm just telling you what it seemed like to me at the time. You know, when our middle son was in fifth grade, he had this teacher, and she was a great teacher. I mean, hard but great. And we're in a student-teacher conference with her one day, and she's just talking on. She's so excited about this. And I said, her name was Miss Apana. I said, Miss Apana, are you under the impression that fifth-grade boys want to come to school? And she goes, oh, yeah, school's so much fun. And, da -da -da. and I go, no, there isn't one boy in your class that, given a choice, would come to school today. She goes, what? She was shocked because she was all in, and she was a girl. You know, and she was social and loved the whole thing about school and brought that enthusiasm into teaching, which was good. I mean, I loved her. And, uh, and she made the kids do stuff that, I mean, they're, they're given, you know, PowerPoint presentations all year long, and they have to stand up and give speeches in fifth grade. If I'd have had to do that, I, I probably would have died in fifth grade. But so she's all excited, you know, that, yeah, of course they want that. I was like, no, they really don't. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't be here, but I'm saying they don't want to be here. And that's the way I was all the way through school until I went to Bible school. I went through school, university, real estate school, insurance school. I never liked any of them, but I loved Rhema. I loved Bible school. Why? Because there was purpose there. For once you could see, ah, this actually makes sense. I can apply it to life. Right? And then and you have to have some of those things to... Fulfill your assignment. I always say this, that we should, everybody should take a season of life just to study the Word. I think it, Bible school is great. Now, it's not practical that everybody do it, but I'm just saying it's nice. And then you should repeat it about every five years just to stay fresh. Also not practical, but I love the idea. So, you know, we have the opportunity today to be in the Word a lot, and we should be, um, because that's where this story really goes with Nehemiah is he, he gets the assignment to rebuild the wall, and it's to rebuild faith. But what it did, it revitalized the people hearing and being a part of the Word of God again. You read in the later chapters that that's where Nehemiah really took them, to where they were hearing the Word again. And you think that all started with an assignment to go rebuild a wall. It comes with the assignment to plant a church in St. Joseph, Illinois. What does God really want to do here? He wants to revitalize faith in people. He wants to get people born again. He wants to see people from all over these communities come in to his family and have their life turned upside down in a good way. That's what he wants. That's what he, that's what he planned when this was started years ago, and it's what he still wants to do today. His vision has never changed. And you're a part of that. If you're sitting here today, I believe that this message was for you. And now if you're watching online, it's for you too. But I believe it's for you. And it's because there's something so important out there, more important than anything else we're doing. Now, I'm not saying we neglect our family. They're a part of it. it was, one of my first pastors was a very charismatic guy. And he had four daughters. And he told this story when the girls were still young-ish. He said they were, um, 
around the table praying one night, all grabbing hands. And, and the Lord spoke to him and said, I want you to let go of the hands around your table so there'll be more hands around mine. Now, that didn't mean he should leave his family. And he never neglected those girls. Never. Um, they're all part of, now he's gone, the, the, the mother's still alive, so they help her in the ministry. But I love the saying that be willing to let go of the hands around your table so that there'll be more hands around his table. And um, I think God's asking us that today. What do we have to let go of so that we can bring more people into God's family, into the church? You know, let's reevaluate our lives. Let's prioritize some things. I don't know if you had the chance to do that during last year or whatever, but if you did, great. If you didn't, do it now because we still have time. And as long as we're still here on the earth, we can bring more people into the kingdom of God. There is nothing more important than that. Nothing. And so God has called us to do that together. Follow your pastor. Listen to the vision of what he has, you know, for this local body. How are we going to grow people up? We're going to, because the, the, the great commission in this respect is twofold, right? One side's evangelism, go into all the world and preach the gospel. The other one is go make disciples. We, we've been called to do both. I think that the greatest commandment or commission that we have is build the church. And then what we call the great commandment fits under, the great commission fits underneath that. But uh, because the build the church is overarching for everything else that we do. It's amazing. It's very simple in one respect. That's why I'm here is to build the church. Now I'm going to put my hand to it. I'm going to develop whatever supply God has given me. If you read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, that's where he says that he gave, when Jesus ascended up on high, he gave gifts unto men, some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. The next couple of verses talk about everybody growing up. And then verse 16, the end of discipleship is that everybody is giving their supply to the body. And, the, and we're all getting stronger and we're growing because of that. What's my supply? Do I know what it is? Have I discovered it? Am I developing it? Am I giving it to the church and to where it's going to affect the church and the world? Every single person that's breathing has a supply. The devil will tell you you don't or that yours isn't important. That's a lie. What you have is vitally important to this group right here and then it goes out and it touches the world. Everything you've done in every that, that's made this church better, in, and you helped us. You touched lives all over the world because of that. Every month, what you do touches Bible school students. It helps plant more churches. It helps get more books done. You did that from here. But that's, that's the work. That's the part that goes out. That's your outreach. The part that you have to do here is, is so important because it'll touch everything else too. Let's stand up this morning. It's a good day to be alive. Amen. It's a good day to be alive. I don't know about you. I'm thankful every day that I'm born again. I remember when I wasn't. And I like this a lot better. I, uh, God will take you and he'll grow you. And you'll be amazed at what he can do in and through you. 
if you just let him, right? And he's going to do that with you right here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We bless your name here in this place, and we're so thankful that you planted this church in this community and you brought these people here. That, Father, we look at this still as, as a beginning again on what you're going to do and how you're going to grow this local church in this community, in this region, and how the, the word that's going out from here will touch lives. That it's like a, a factory that just produces the word in every form and sends it out to people. Through small groups, through Sundays, through whatever avenue that it reaches people. Father, we thank you that that, that word is changing lives. It's transforming lives. We ask you to draw more people in, into this place. But not only do we ask you, we're going to go out and ask them ourselves. We're going to do our part, and we're going to share the good news with those that don't know it, get them born again, and then bring them into the church to be a part of the family. Father, thank you for your word and for helping us do this. We love you and we're so thankful for all that you've done in and through us. And we look forward to the days ahead before Jesus comes back for the church. That there are days that we have been prepared for like never before. If there was ever a group of people that's ready for difficult times, it's us. And we have the answer and we're willing to share it with people. Boldly proclaiming that Jesus is the answer for the world today. And we thank you for that in his name. Amen. It seems like probably if, since everybody pretty much here is uh, a part of the church, if I guess there was one hand that went up. If you're new and you don't know Jesus is your Savior, today would be an awful good day to do it. I made that decision in June of 1974. I was a hard nut to crack, but uh, finally got that one open and I got saved and Jesus changed my life just like people told me he would. I grew up in a home with an alcoholic mother and a workaholic father. It wasn't a great combination. And, uh, and God got a hold of me and changed my life. If he can change me, he can change anybody. So if, whether you're watching online or whether you're here today, if you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, today would be a good day. Does anybody want to raise their hand in here? Say, yeah, that's me. I can't see if you're raising your hand online, but... There's probably, if you are, there's a place you can write in, and we're going to pray a real quick prayer. You can pray with me, and it's the start. There's no perfect prayer to get born again. My prayer was, God, I'll give you my life if you can change my life. If you can't, it'll be a short experiment. That's how I got born again. So you can, we can do it a little different than that. Uh, we're going to, but let's just pray together, and uh, we'll ask Jesus like it's the first time. And uh, so if you've never prayed that prayer, this would be a great prayer to pray and then let somebody know. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you so much for sending Jesus to the earth, that he lived, he suffered, he died, and he rose again. And because he rose again, that we can have new life also. So today we pray and we receive Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. We ask Him to come into our heart and change our life. 
and give us salvation. So, Father, we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And there's other things you can do and get. And if uh, anybody, you know, I don't know how you normally handle if anybody needs healing in their body, maybe you just raise your hand, twirl around seven times, and you'll receive it right where you are. Uh, something. Now, you can, there's always people to pray for you. You know what? If you need something today, before you leave here today, ask somebody sitting in your row or somewhere, would you pray with me? And we pray in the name of Jesus with authority. And when we lay hands on the sick, they recover. Amen. Amen. So that's what we can do. We do that before you leave. Pastor, thank you so much. Love being here again today. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.